everyone to episode 96, STDs and Stem Cells. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm okay now, and I don't want to get too personal, but in the theme of the episode, I want to tell you that when I was in college, this girl that I was dating very transiently, and then I, when I was dating someone else, she told everybody that I gave her chlamydia. Oh my god! Can you gosh. believe that? Can you believe it? And of course, I didn't wow. have it that I knew of, but you know it can be asymptomatic. Right. You know, am I betraying that I know too much about chlamydia? Well, I'm going forward anyway. So I had this crisis <sighs> of whether am I going to go get tested for this STD because a test for a male can be very invasive. And uh, so I really put her, raked her over the coals and made her show me medical records saying that she had been diagnosed. And then uh, it turned out she made it all up. So that's my intro for today. I might have had chlamydia, but I didn't. So I'm clean, guys. She must have been mad at you. Yeah, she was. I deserved it. I deserved it, quite honestly. She's a great girl. And I, you know, notwithstanding the whole fake chlamydia thing, I love her. I love her still. Oh, being young. I know. I I deserved chlamydia, quite honestly, if I'm I'm being totally honest. This is just a lesson. Be nicer to each other so that maybe no one... Lies about you having an STD. Don't even have to think about it. Shouldn't even have to worry about it. Oh my goodness. What a story to start off the show. Okay, everyone. (laughs) A little insight into young Dalen James. Oh no. no. Too much, man. (laughs) Okay, let's get down to business. Make sure all of you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media. We are at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will automatically download to your phone. All right. We do have a great show today, and we're going to discuss the latest science and stem cell news, and we are interviewing, in line with the story that Dalen just told, Dr. Bob Hancock about his work moving towards using stem cells as a way to understand and treat STDs like chlamydia. But first, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? All right, Kiki, let's get into the roundup. But first, as always, before the roundup, we'd like to remind our listeners of one of Connexon's original newsletters. This week, fitting nicely with our guest, Dr. Bob Hancock, Stem Cell would like to introduce Connexon's three immunology newsletters, Immunology of Infectious Disease News, Human Immunology News, and Immune Regulation News. 
As with all of Connexon's 20 weekly science newsletters, these free emails are compiled by field experts who spend their days scouring the latest research, news, events, and jobs in various fields of cell biology. They do the digging so you can spend more time doing the science. Visit www.connexoncreative.com to subscribe. All right, Kiki, let me hear some science news. I have got some for you. And, you know, cells, we love them. The stuff inside is pretty important. DNA, right? It makes us who we are. It also plays a role not only in birth and making us who we are, but in death as well. A new study published in the June 22nd issue of PLOS Genetics has looked at genetic variants related to fertility and coronary artery disease. So what? Mm. You don't normally connect fertility with coronary artery disease. But this time, what they've found is a genetic connection that links these traits together genetically. So coronary artery disease results from plaque accumulation in the arteries that supply blood to the heart. And the buildup can start when you're quite young. It's been a problem for a really long time. It's not like it's a completely modern problem. This has affected humans for thousands and thousands of years. And scientists are wondering why the genes or the mutations that are involved in the disease haven't been weeded out. Why, if they're causing a problem and they're deleterious to our ability to live, and they start when you're young, maybe during the time that you're reproductively active, why aren't we weeding them out? Why aren't they going away? So, They looked at a bunch of genetic variants associated with coronary artery disease, and they found that they spread really rapidly through humanity about 10,000 years ago. So within the last 10,000 years, they got their start and they've just been spreading. And so now they're making the assumption that, okay, if they're spreading that quickly, maybe there's an evolutionary advantage. So they reviewed 143 previous studies and found that a lot of these genes were linked to important reproductive functions, male and female fertility, fetal development, and survival. And so coronary artery disease is persisting because people who have them have more kids. So birth rate boosting genes was particularly advantageous, especially during the agricultural boom of uh, civilization. And then when people moved to cities, there were infectious diseases that were increasing mortality rates among children. And so people with these genes would have been more likely to last longer, continue their lineage again if they're having more kids, even if they're having heart problems later on. And so this study, they think, might be a warning for gene therapy because it suggests that there are many genetic connections between different bodily functions that we don't understand. And so, yeah, we've, we've known this for a while. We don't, you know, it's important to figure out the links between multiple genes. And if doctors want to treat coronary artery disease by editing a person's DNA, you got to know what else is going to be affected. You know, there is a link, though, Kika, I have to say. It's the heart, isn't it? And right. the heart and fertility. <laughs> I would ask, mm-hmm. though, my question here is, and maybe this doesn't apply, especially in like the agricultural, agrarian societies, but I know in the modern day, all those fat guys living well and living rich, having a lot of kids, 
because they're rich and they're living well because they're rich and that there may be a correlation between, you know, having a lot of children because you're rich and being having poor heart. But that's, you know, I'm, like I said, that's just a question that I would ask, particularly about the modern day. But that's an interesting study. And it is, it's what you wonder, right? Yeah. How come this thing is still so pervasive? The number one killer. Hasn't the body figured this thing out yet? Yeah, especially since... It is so, uh, I mean, it, it limits life and it limits reproductive ability if you have heart disease that predisposes you to dying young, especially. I mean, there are a lot of heart attacks in like the 50s, 60s, 70s as you age, but that's getting past prime reproductive age. So for men and women, if that's when coronary artery disease is going to hit you, I don't think that's really going to impact overall fertility, right? It's not going to impact a deleterious gene variant being weeded out of the population. It's coronary artery disease that affects 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. That's where it's super impactful. The congenital forms, they they shouldn't even be there, but I guess they serve a function. They've found links. This is correlation, not causation. And they're also, I think, making assumptions about the evolutionary advantage about the timing of the disease and mortality as a result of it. So I think there is still a lot to be teased out from this, but I think the implications of understanding these multi-trait genetic variants, the effects of them, uh, I think that that is an important message from this study. For sure. Yeah. What if you could immunize yourself from the flu? I'm anti-vax, babe. Oh, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) What if it were as easy as just putting on a Band-Aid? You didn't have to go. I mean, it's it's gotten easier in the, you know, in in the last few years. You go in and you take your kids for their well-child visit, and then they're like, do you want to get vaccinated for the flu while you're here? And you're like, sure. Or you go into the local, you know, even grocery stores have pharmacies, you know, the big chains have got their pharmacies and they're like, come in and get your vaccine. And you're like, okay, that's super easy. So things have gotten easier with respect to our lifestyles and vaccines. But what if it could be even easier? That's a no brainer. What if it were needles? What if it weren't a needle? Yeah. So published online June 27th in The Lancet, there is a patch that's been developed. It's like a Band-Aid, and it has a bunch of dissolving micro-needles that when it was tested, they found it worked as well. Safety and effectiveness were on par with an injection. And people where the patch was applied by a professional versus applied by themselves, didn't matter. Effectiveness and safety were all the same. So they studied a bunch of different things about this patch being applied to the skin. Super easy. It looks like a bandage. Doesn't really hurt. It just, you push it onto the back of the wrist. The microneedles penetrate into the outer layer of the skin and dissolve. And because they're micro, the study co-author says, feels like Velcro being pressed against the skin, but it doesn't really hurt because it's, you know, they're little tiny needles that don't really impact your pain receptors. That's kind of neat. There's an array of 100 hard cone-shaped microneedles, a little more than half a millimeter tall. They're made of polyvinyl alcohol, sugar, and the vaccine. So they just, they go into the outer layer of the skin. They dissolve pretty much immediately. The vaccine gets into your body. 
and it works. People were... It works. Yeah. Well, you know, I would say the key element of the study, Kiki, my critique, it works as well as injectables, flu vaccine. Yeah. And I, I've gotten the vaccine every year because I have to because I work in a hospital and I also get the flu every year. So I don't know how well this is. They need to do it with something that's like more robust. The flu vaccine, it's interesting, fascinating engineering approach. I love it. A hundred microneedles sounds scarier, but I'm sure it doesn't hurt. But the, they need. I would like something that's like binary because the flu vaccine is not very good to begin with. I wish they had something that was more solid. They are starting or they're planning tests with polio vaccine. Oh, well, there we go. Yeah. So uh, we won't get polio. We already knew that, didn't we? Yes. Well, it's not eradicated <laughs> worldwide, polio. So oh, that's true. this could potentially help in efforts to get rid of polio in uh, areas of the world where it is still prevalent. Yeah, third world. I mean, that's yep. the key, right? How about the storage of these things? I mean, that's what you wonder about when they're applying them in the third world. And the, uh, that is a good question. I think these could be very easily stored for long periods of time. No refrigeration, no I refrigeration. think. No yeah, refrigeration. Yeah, exactly. Put it on a shelf. Pick it up. Slap it on. There you go. Well, I'll give it to my kid before a needle. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. And what if you could have like, you know, just if, if you could do either multiple patches or if you could put multiple vaccines in the same patch so you could just single patch application. I mean, it could be so it could make it so much easier. What if they made them out of heroin? Oh, Wouldn't my. that be something? Now you're going the wrong direction. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, that would be bad, actually. <laughs> I mean, sure. Bad. Pain relief patch. Yeah, I like it. No yeah, trouble with good. abuse. No. <laughs> not good. I yeah. take it back. All right. Speaking of abuse and things that we wish we could take back, gun-inflicted wounds, especially in children, are high. Every day, roughly 19 children die or are medically treated in an emergency department for gun-inflicted wounds, a study in the June 19th issue of Pediatrics. And they looked at data from 2002 to 2014, found that about 1,300 kids between birth and age 17 die from gunshot wounds each year. On average, another 5,790 kids are wounded. 53% are homicides, 38% are suicides, and 6% are accidents. Boys in their teens make up the bulk of gunshot victims. Race varies. African-Americans are much higher in their likelihood of dying from homicide than suicide. White children are three times as likely to die from suicide as from homicide. American Indian, Asian-American kids, it's about half and half. But this study starts looking at why these numbers are the way that they are so that implications can be made and that policy can potentially come from it to decrease the numbers here. Behavioral Science at U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Catherine Fowler and her colleagues, started with data from the National Vital Statistics System and the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System. They looked at cases described in the National Violent Death Reporting System. That let the researchers fill in details like where incidents took place, whether multiple victims were involved. Was it a homicide followed by suicide? Was it a multiple victim homicide? There's also demographic information about the shooter, whether there's evidence of alcohol or drugs that are involved, whether it's gang related or was a love spat or whether it had to do with per parents. 
the relationships involved, whether there's financial or school issues. And so they start getting clues coming to light, such as evidence of depression, anxiety, previous suicide attempts, treatment for mental health problems and physical health problems. And then notes about playing with a gun or thinking the gun was a toy or hunting accidents were also included in these reporting systems. So it's able to give them a whole bunch of information that previously hasn't really been looked at. They've concluded that firearm homicides of younger children up through age 12 usually involve conflict between parents, intimate partners, or among family. And so they say that this highlights how children can be caught in the crossfire in cases of domestic violence and gets at the importance of addressing the intersection of these forms of violence. And also involving child suicides, they say, while mental health factors are important, the findings also show that firearm suicides were also frequently related to situational life stressors and relationship problems with an intimate partner, friend, or family member. And so these details, they hope, can help researchers and lawmakers create more effective policies to prevent tragic deaths and injuries among children. Yeah, we can all get behind that, right? It seems so silly. And I guess information is the key, although when you see the differential in terms of socioeconomic racial groups, you can see that some of the things here are so deeply embedded in culture. So shining a light on that, I think, is a first step to trying to understand it, make policy that's sensitive while also effective. I mean, one of the issues is there is legislation against tracking gun use and gun registration. There's actual legislation against research that delves into this kind of stuff. And so if we can show through this use of different databases that the data on gun deaths and injuries is helpful, that maybe it'll help create policy that will support following, follow through on this. I mean, the researcher says highlighting the need for evidence-based solutions to address this public health problem is important. So there is the political support. I mean, there's lack of funding, number one, and there's also a lack of political support. I mean, the NRA is very much against tracking a lot of data that could be very helpful in reducing the number of gun deaths among children. Lack of support for reducing gun death among children. Wow. Yeah, because I got to have my guns. <laughs> yeah, of course. This is America. Okay, I'm not going to get into the politics of that right now. I'm just going to keep moving on and into something. It's a positive. Alzheimer's disease is very detrimental to the life quality of many individuals and their families. But for the first time, scientists have revealed the chemical structure of one of the key markers, the tau proteins, um, of Alzheimer's disease. They have captured high-resolution images of abnormal tau protein deposits. And these are the molecules that are suspected of gumming up the works in neurons and basically being the cause of Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative conditions. And so what they hope is this research by the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in the UK. They're hoping that by high-resolution scanning these molecules, they'll be able to get a real idea of where the points of opportunity for drug targeting could be. Uh, these molecular insights that are afforded by the cryo-electron microscopy imaging could mean opportunities that have not been seen before. 
The head of research at Alzheimer's Research UK, Rosa Sancho, says drugs that could clear away clumps of protein in the brain are a key goal for researchers, but to directly affect these proteins, molecules that make up the drug need to latch on and bind to their surface. And knowing the precise shape of these complex protein structures is enormously valuable in guiding the development of targeted drugs. So we know a lot about the tau protein functions, we just haven't gotten as much into their structure. We've got, you know, genetic structure and stuff, but actual tertiary quaternary structure of how the, it folds and where the openings are, that has yet been unknown. So the tau structures were obtained from a deceased individual with Alzheimer's disease. So thanks to that, potentially many people will be helped at some point in the future. You got to see it. You got to see it before you can understand it. Yeah, and so these findings are reported in Nature, if you're interested in looking them up. That does it for me, Dalen. What is in your stem cell roundup? I got a few things for you, Kiki. Maybe something related to something we covered last episode. Uh, quick on the heels of the announcement of pioneering new studies in China to treat, I think it was Parkinson's disease and uh, AMD or something, macular degeneration, but they're like injecting stem cells right into people. Ah. So I don't think it's a coincidence, but quick on the heels of that, we have article written by 15 experts that came together to write in science translational medicine. The bottom line is stem cell tourism needs tighter controls. And I think, you know, this applies to a lot of studies we've covered about those poor old ladies, liposuction and MSCs injected into their eye and had their retinas detached, crazy stuff. There's the clinical stuff like that, these little micro clinics. But also, I think these experts are calling for controls on advertising and also international standards for therapies. And I think this is specifically related to these major trials that seem to be moving forward internationally, specifically in China, you know, there's hundreds of these medical centers around the world that are claiming to be able to repair damaged tissue in conditions ranging as far as multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, so, you know, blindness or, you know, even <laughs> impotence for that matter. We've covered stories about that. So there's a lot of claims. And I think the issue here is that the therapies are advertised directly to patients with the promise of, of a cure. Yeah. But there's really little evidence. There's no trials that have been put in place, at least not rigorous ones, that'll show that they'll help or even to show that they won't harm the patient. So I think that's the message. Well, that is the message from these 15 experts. And I think it's important to note, and they do note, that maybe part of the confusion stems from the fact that there are some stem cell therapies that are in play, you know, namely these Blood and skin stem cells even have been used and approved by regulators after rigorous clinical trials that show they can be applied for hematological malignancies or for skin grafts. But this is in a really rigorous paradigm of clinical trial. You know, I, I think that a lot of the studies moving forward now are maybe not up to that standard. So these experts are calling for global action led uh, by the WHO, the World Health Organization, to introduce controls on advertising and to agree to international standards for the manufacture and testing of cell and tissue-based therapies. So just to quote the article, because I think this is a real salient point here, the global, quote, the globalization of health markets and the specific tensions surrounding stem cell research and its applications have made this a difficult challenge, they write, However, the stakes are too high not to take a united stance. And I think that's really the bottom line here is that there's so much hype. 
there's so much potential and hope and desperation in some places. And at the same time, there's this geopolitical, bioethical maelstrom centering around destruction of embryo. There's all these forces coming into play, but the promise is so great that I think it's worth everyone coming together to move forward carefully with a consensus on what the best way to do that is. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people who want hope for a cure for whatever is ailing them or their family members. They're willing to do just about anything to get help. And there are people who feed on that and don't have, you know, whose morals might be, or maybe a little loose. (laughs) (laughs) Or they just, they really believe it. They really believe what they're doing, but they don't have the real, they don't have the proof. Right. And so they're basically testing on people before they go through safety checks. And so people are getting injured. And if we can help prevent that, if we continue down this path that we are on, many, many more people are going to be injured, will die as a result of unvetted treatments. And so if we can prevent that, I, I mean... Not to mention the backlash. I mean, yeah. you've got a couple people dying who shouldn't have, and that's pretty much it. You're going yeah. to delay the whole, the whole field. field. So, yeah. so let's be smart, China. Please. All right. Please. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I hear a lot about, you know, oh, Italy or Mexico, you know, not just China. China. Not just China. China, actually, you know, all respect to China. They're they're bold. And uh, I think other people are definitely worse. Other countries, other nations. But please, for goodness sake. All right. So let's talk about something a little anti-dogmatic. You know, Neural stem cells in development, even in adults, they position themselves. They may arise from some central place, but they position themselves according to these like trophic signals, right? Neurotrophic signals, perhaps they're chemical. They move according to this flow of these chemical guides, but with a little electrical stimulation, they can be coaxed to go in another direction. At least that's according to a new study in stem cell reports. This group, they applied electric current to human neural stem cells that were injected into rats' brains. And instead of moving toward the olfactory bulb, which is the default destination where they were introduced to the brain, the electrical current caused them to move toward the animal's subventricular zone and lateral ventricle. So this result suggests that electrical stimulation in itself might one day be used to guide neural stem cells to sites of damage in the brain. So this is to quote Alan Trounson of the Hudson Institute in Australia. This is the first study I've seen where stimulation is done with electrodes in the brain and has been convincing about changing the natural flow of cells so that they move in the opposite direction. I'm sorry, guys. That's my Alan Trounson imitation (laughs) because he's very excited. And he's very Australian. To resume, the technique has strong possibilities for applications because the team has shown you can move cells and you could potentially move them into seriously affected brain areas. All right, that's it for that. But Alan Trounson did say that, and he's right. Researchers are interested in commandeering neural stem cells to lead them to tissue that's been damaged by disease, like Parkinson's, or injury, like stroke or, you know, spinal cord injury, and regenerate healthy cells. Mammalian stem cells, you know, are there in adults. They're stored deep in the brain in the subventricular zone or hippocampus. And in order to replace or turn over cells in the brain, they have to travel a long distance 
according to these chemical cues that are secreted by cells. So the idea here is that maybe you could mobilize these cells using electric current. And, you know, typically researchers have used these chemical guides and modeling the natural brain movement. But this is like a new idea. And maybe it makes sense intuitively. The brain, it's this electrical turbulent, you know, I'm picturing in the, in the cartoons, you always see like a little lightning bolts and whatnot going on. And so it would make sense that maybe they're responsive to electrical signals. So just to show how they did it, they tagged these human neural stem cells with GFP and, and they injected them into the rostral migration stream of rats' brains. Usually that stream guides the nascent nerve cells to the olfactory bulb, but when they put electrodes in the brain and conducted a current that was against the regular flow, the cells moved in the opposite direction. So this is a, a really interesting idea, interesting approach. Evan Snyder of the Burnham says the data are convincing that the cells are responsive to electric current. To quote, the work is an interesting proof of concept, but the challenge will be how do we use this in a clinical setting? And that's really the key. I mean, you can get them to move en masse across or against their normal current, but how you could pr precisely and focally have them migrate to a site of injury is another question. And the team now is setting up primate studies to look into a, more, a less invasive application that can send electrical stimulation through the skull from the outside. So we'll see how that pans out. But I love this idea. It's a new idea using electrical current instead of chemical cues that you got to inject. Maybe you could create a field that could be less invasively you know, affecting the mobilization of these cells. Yeah, I mean, neurons work through electrochemical transmission, right? You have chemicals that are released from the cells. Those stimulate electrical impulses in other cells. Electrical transmission down the length of a neuron eventually results in the release of chemicals. So I think all of this ties in together. And like in neuroscience, you have this mantra that's like cells that fire together, wire together. So this, this all, it makes sense. I'm a little surprised that this is considered a new idea, but I mean, maybe it's just the specialization of it in getting these stem cells to move from place to place. Fairness, in fairness, it's new to me. Yeah, so I don't yeah. know that these guys are and saying it's a new specifically, idea, but I just yeah. know it. It just kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're stimulating an area electrically, there's going to be that electrical impulse that might be attractive, but then there's also going to maybe be increased release of neurotransmitters and other chemicals that might actually upregulate that movement a bit. Right. I'm thinking also of like, you know, physical therapy, when there is a spinal injury, you get people into an artificial situation where you move their legs, you move their limbs, because that physical movement induces neural activity in the extremities. And that can help release signals that could influence repair. It is exciting. It's a proof of concept. I'm a little also wondering about the electrical stimulation through the skull. That if, if they can make that work, it's interesting. <laughs> and then what does that mean for all of the DIY transcranial stimulation no, people no. out there? You know, what are you really doing? You're rewiring <laughs> something. You're sending some NSCs somewhere in your brain, for yeah. better or worse. Yeah, lots of, I don't know, lots yeah. of implications. I, I love questions. it. A lot yeah. of questions left to, to answer there. I like it. Well, we got some more questions that can be answered now, thanks to Shubing Chen here at Wild Cornell Medical College, my place, my home. She's been on the show. 
her and Todd Evans also here doing great work. Okay, this is the first ever disease in a petri dish platform that models human colon cancer. Okay, so there's a lot of that that was done in this study that maybe gets short shrift. The the big deal to me was that they were able to make these colonic organoids in the first place. You know, getting endoderm and maybe some of the rudiments of the gut, foregut, whatever. Early in development is one thing, but getting stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells specifically, to become like an actual organ that you can use to model like the organ in adult, especially a specialized organ like the colon, is a big deal. In this study, I won't belabor the methodology, but they essentially identified wind signaling and and did these eight to ten week long differentiation protocols to get these colonic organoids. But the real reason why it's in nature medicine is because then they use this to decipher some really important questions about colon and rectal cancer. So colon and rectal cancer is second leading cause of cancer deaths in America. Okay, In 2017, we're talking about 50,000 people that are going to die from the disease, and 135 new cases are going to be diagnosed. So what the group did here is they took a skin from patients with an inherited form of colorectal disease. It's called familial adenomatous polyposis. Okay, so you get these polyps, and the intestinal cells develop into polyps that eventually, over the course of many years, can become colon cancer. What the group did here is they got skin from these patients. They made IPS cells. They made these colonic organoids from them. And what they saw was that in the disease or genetically affected colonic organoids, they saw that the cells grew out of control. And it was facilitated by these two specific mutations and downstream signaling pathways. Then they screened for drugs that would mitigate this out-of-control growth. And they found two drugs. One was a Wnt inhibitor, one was rapamycin. And these significantly curbed the cell proliferation Phenotype, but interestingly, they also decrease growth in the control organoids. Okay, so this was an example of like a drug hit that hit disease and healthy. healthy yeah. Then they found a further candidate that only normalized the disease lines while having no effect on the control. So it was a you know multi-tiered study. They made these things that no one had made before. They created this model and then they used the model to address an important question in this familial adenomatous polyposis, and then found drug candidates that blanket affected the pathway and proliferation, as well as specifically normalizing proliferation in these disease cells. To quote Dr. Chen, our results demonstrate that we can use this platform to model colon cancer and identify precision medicines that may work to target specific genetic mutations driving the disease. And the other co-author, Todd Evans, made a great point. The beauty is that we can make patient-specific organoids, increasing the likelihood of predicting which drugs may work and learn about any undesirable effects all before we even bring them into the patient. Yeah. So this illustrates all the components there. You can kind of you know, pilot the treatment in a disease model. I love it. The individualized medicine way of looking at things here is just, it's going to be awesome. They prove this to work and that they can, you know, actually show, hey, we know exactly what's going to happen in this particular patient. These mutations are the ones that are responsible or that the drug will affect. And we can help you this way without you having all those negative effects. Maybe that, you know, the chemotherapy is not going to affect you as badly. 
Exactly. And Dr. Hancock, who we have on the show today, you know, I've read his paper and he's going to tell us about how we established this IPS model of chlamydia infection, which is kind of generic pan. And here we're looking at something that can look specifically on a patient level. So many applications of induced pluripotent stem cells for studying disease mechanism, both on the global level, talking about chlamydia, which infects, you know, too many people globally, also down to the single individual patient. So we're running the whole spectrum here. Moving on to... I was going to yeah, say, go even with I'm the... I'm not moving on. <laughs> Just for a moment. Yeah, I mean, even with the chlamydia, at some point, the, the individualized medicine might make a difference because different people have different resistivities to mm-hmm. infection. And so why, what are the genes that are responsible for some patients not getting chlamydia when they're exposed or getting maybe, you know, not a little infection, but not a big infection? You know, what's the difference between different people, and will it affect the way that you can treat it? So There's also the question of how do you not get fake chlamydia from being an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you answered your own question, right, in that statement. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay, now it's, moving on. It's, it's still a challenge. All right, so on to, you know, the happy and sad. I think we, when we ever I talk about glioblastoma, I get bummed out because it's like a sledgehammer. You can't stop this thing. But it makes me happy because the reason we're talking about it is because somebody's doing something. And in this case, they're doing something, I think, pretty great. This is a study published in Cell Stem Cell. Just briefly, I mean, it belies the importance of this study that I'm going to cover it so briefly. But bottom line is they took glioblastoma stem-like cells, okay, and they developed this hybridoma library screening approach, okay, where they generate thousands of monoclonal antibodies that they dump on these glioblastoma stem-like cells in order to search for receptors or pathways, extracellular factors that are enriched in these glioblastoma-like stem cells. And in doing this, they identified this specific integrin, integrin alpha-7, that's a major receptor in GSEs, both in its preferentially enriched in GSEs. It's also in primary glioma specimens. So looking at comprehensive data sets, you know, they have all these patients now who've come in and they've, they've looked at the RNA profile screening of all these patient tumors and correlate it with the disease outcome. And they've shown now looking back through these databases that high ITGA7, integrin alpha 7 expression, negatively correlated with survival with both low and high-grade glioma. So that means if you have high integrin alpha 7, doesn't look good for your prognosis. In vitro in vivo analysis also showed that this factor plays a key functional role in the growth and the invasiveness of the uh, glioblastoma stem-like cells. And, of course, they showed that if you target this, either by RNA interference or by using, like, interfering blocking-type antibodies, you impaired the signaling, and it led to significant delay in tumor engraftment and a strong reduction in tumor size and invasion. So, you know, all these things together have revealed that integrin alpha-7 may be a prime candidate for the classic pharmaceutical approach, if we can target this factor and minimize the signaling that's mediated by this factor, that we may have a way of getting at these glioblastomas and reducing them and maybe increasing lifespan. So good news. That would be awesome. I mean, you first have the marker and then you find out 
whether or not you can get your therapeutic across the blood-brain barrier, and then you're going. And you're going. But at the first set, you could take a patient, comes in with a horrible diagnosis, you screen, look at their, yeah. you know, expression level of integrin alpha 7, maybe yeah. give them some good news, you know, maybe personalize the approach as we were alluding to in the last story. Another case yeah. of looking, starting with the patient specimen to understand what the disease and the therapy ought to be. Start with the patient. There you go. That's the message. That's what we're doing today. Start with the patient. Now we're going to talk about all these patients with chlamydia, the real kind. (laughs) Yep, we're going to dig into that. But before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let us know about a product line called Immunocult that has been specifically developed for the activation, expansion, and differentiation of immune cells. The Immunocult products can be used to activate, expand, and differentiate T-cells. There are also immunocult products designed to generate monocyte-derived macrophages or dendritic cells. And if you want to learn more about immunocult cells, please visit www.immunocult.com. That's I-M-M-U-N-O-C-U-L-T dot com. Join the immunocult. Treat you good. (laughs) That's right. It's a good cult to be a part of. For studying um, immunology. This is, yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a neat line of cells if you're involved in immune stem cells. Yeah. Good research sourcing there. Coolest. For sure. A lot of cool people in that cult, for sure. A lot of nerds. All right. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Dr. Bob Hancock. Dr. Hancock is a professor of microbiology and immunology at UBC, a Canada research chair in health and genomics. Bob has published more than 660 papers in his career and has 50 patents awarded to him. The fundamental interest of Dr. Hancock and his laboratory is in designing new therapeutic strategies to treat infections in the light of increasing antibiotic resistance coupled with a dearth of new antibiotic discovery. Recently, his team and their collaborators at the University of British Columbia have created an innovative technique for studying how chlamydia interacts with the human immune system. The researchers used a combination of gene editing and stem cell technologies to make the model, and the results reported in Nature Communications identify novel drug targets for the sexually transmitted disease. Dr. Hancock, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a joy to have you on. So can you just start us off? I've introduced the fundamental identity of this paper you published recently, but can you tell our audience a bit more about yourself and the focus of your work? Yes, so uh, maybe I'll just uh, describe with respect to the stem cells because we have a fairly broad, uh, let's say, campaign of research here at uh, UBC. So about seven or eight years ago, I was uh, actually Galapagos Islands at a meeting would you believe, where I was talking to my uh, colleague, uh, Gordon Dugan, who we were engaged in a large international project with, and uh, he mentioned the idea that Sanger had to start to knock out genes in uh, embryonic stem cells. This was originally in mice. That sounded very attractive to me, so it sounded like a tractable genetic system that was much easier to use than knockout mice, for example, which we'd been engaged with with Sanger for quite a few years. So I actually went on my sabbatical to Sanger and I started to try to figure out how to turn stem cells into something useful for phenotyping. So obviously stem cells by themselves uh, being immortalized don't do very much of interest, but they do have the great advantage that they're genetically very tractable, so they're easy to mutate. 
And what I did was figure out how, in my sabbatical, to figure out how to turn stem cells into macrophages in fairly high throughput. So I chose macrophages because they're one of the key cells in the body that are involved in infection and inflammation. They're involved in phagocytosis, which means eating bacteria. They're actually also a host for bacteria under many different circumstances. And they're also involved in the uh, immune response to bacteria. So they have many different levels on which they're involved in uh, infection and immunology, if you like. I worked out the basic methodology. And then towards the end of my time at Sanger, Sanger started to bring up uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cells. And so this was very interesting to me. And uh, fortunately, Sanger decided to make me an associate faculty member. So I'm the, actually the only foreign associate faculty member outside of uh, Europe, but only two outside of Great Britain. And uh, basically, that allowed me to start uh, this uh, major collaboration to try to understand infection from a genetic perspective using stem cell-derived macrophages as our tool. Wow. So we're talking now and translating that into the human system and the induced pluripotent. Are we talking about getting specific patients, specific genetic backgrounds and looking at disease susceptibility, as many groups have? Or are we talking about something different there? So that's certainly a, a potential and other types of studies have variety of different instances where inflammation is a major part of different diseases. But uh, in this case, I thought that the real advantage was to do something that I as a microbiologist had been doing for years in, with bacteria, which is to make mutant libraries and start to understand in a more non-directed fashion, an unbiased fashion as to what particular genes did in the context of infection. I really like this idea of uh, being able to make uh, homozygous knockouts and eventually being able to make uh, mutant libraries and stem cells and to screen them for different phenotypes. So our nature communications paper was, if you like, the first step along the way to doing this. So yeah, let's elaborate on that. I guess the first step, real first step there with the mouse at Sanger was figuring out how to get the macrophages, and then you moved into the human system, and now presumably you're making these macrophages. I mean, I know the answer. I've read the paper. You're making the macrophages and then subjecting them to this chlamydia virus. So talk about how you can exploit this platform. I guess the real foundation for this is that human macrophages that have been used experimentally haven't been as reliable or haven't mirrored the actual life cycle of infection. Could you tell us how you've made a new model that's better than anything that has come before? Okay, so first, basically, I need to say that chlamydia is not a virus. Bacteria. Pardon me. Absolute no-no. But it's not a bad mistake to make because it's a remarkable bacterium. It is absolutely only infects human beings. It uh, has these two forms, which is an extracellular form there's essentially a crusty coat around the nucleic acid, and then it infects cells and grows intracellularly. So at the, out, the extracellular form is infectious, and the intracellular form is involved in replication. So it's somewhat virus-like. It's absolutely trophic for human cells, and so you can't use mouse models and things like that unless you use humanized mice, which are very complicated and expensive. Models that were previously available were to take patient's blood cells, which would vary from time to time, would be to take immortalized cells, which never really behave in the same way as uh, normal human cells. And in this case, the first thing we did is we looked at what the uh, gene expression was in our 
iPS-derived macrophages, uh, stem cell-derived macrophages, and paired that to normal human cells that we turned into macrophages. And we found that uh, basically there were only very few genes were not expressed in one but not the other. So most of the genes were highly expressed. We're talking 15,000 genes expressed similarly in both. We also looked at their responses to a variety of different agents, including uh, particular agonists that are part of bacteria that uh, stimulate the immune system and chlamydia itself. And again, we found massive overlap. So I'm not saying there were differences, but there was actually tremendous overlap in the range of about 2,500 genes changed expression similarly when you, for example, challenge with chlamydia. It's a really a very, very strong model. Now, there are differences, but those differences relate to the fact that uh, the stem cells are cultured and therefore they undergo cell division a little bit more efficiently than human macrophages do. And they're still uh, relatively immortalized, so they do have some lingering effects of what you need to do to turn them into immortalized cells. But uh, they, by and large, are quite similar and go through very, very similar responses. And then we delve much deeper into these stem cells where we looked at the pathways that were involved and uh, we found the pathways, again, were almost identical between the same, between the two species. We did this both by RNA-seq, which is a transcriptomic or gene expression methodology, we did this by proteomics, we did this with cytokines, we did this with uh, electron microscopy looking for similar appearance, and all of these looked at, told us this was really a tremendous model of uh, human macrophage infection by chlamydia. So I need to tell you why chlamydia is that uh, turns out to be the most common cause of sexually transmitted diseases in the world. It's also the most common cause of preventable blindness in the world. So basically it uh, has phenomenal importance uh, internationally. It's becoming increasingly resistant and uh, it's uh, because of it has this uh, quite different extracellular and intracellular form, it's quite intractable to other types of treatments. So there's no vaccine as yet. The difference between the intracellular and the extracellular form, I mean, this is reminiscent to say HIV or a retrovirus that gets itself into, is, is it reminiscent where the intracellular form is hiding. So you can't get drugs to it when it's intracellular. Yes, it's really interesting because there's both the kind of a dormancy state. So you can get uh, chlamydia infections breaking out from time to time. But there's also the intracellular form consists of bacteria going in. It never disassembles itself like an HIV virus would do into uh, DNA that it now enters the nucleus. Instead, it stays as a particle, but it uh, forms instead of this tight particle, which you see extracellularly, is this loose particle called a reticulate body. And that is what undergoes replication. And by the time you've gone through 48 to 72 hours, you see a cell that's absolutely packed full of bacteria. The chlamydia itself can't make ATP, which is the basic coinage of life. It's what uh, all life uses for energy. And so it has to get it from the cell. So it just literally takes over the cell machinery and uh, subverts it, if you like, for its own purpose, which is to make lots of baby, lots of little chlamydia. It is really similar to a retrovirus in that respect, or a virus that comes in and takes advantage of the cellular machinery to do what it needs to do. So interesting enough, when you're thinking about therapy, you have to think about it in a virus-like way. So obviously, antivirals, there are very few of them and they don't work tremendously well. 
but they essentially are working against the intrastellular stages of growth. More commonly, we're increasingly thinking about post-direct therapies for HIV and for many other viruses, and that's something that's really been ignored in the past for bacteria. The idea that you can somehow encourage the host to get rid of a particular pathogen. And so that's the thing that we're looking for as an opportunity when we're looking at chlamydia infections in these IPS drive back. To get to that, I guess the one of just to paraphrase and pardon me if I'm not exactly accurate here, but look, using your model, this human model, very robust, you were able to find that uh, two, perhaps more, but at least two genes, this IRF1 and IL10RA were upregulated in response to chlamydia. So is that what you're talking about now? There's this intrinsic host response to the disease that you can amplify. And when you talk about, you know, the mechanism here and your story is showing that these genes were essential in limiting or in somehow restricting the chlamydia bacterial infectivity. Is that right? And if so, how do you go about amplifying host response to clinical effect? Yeah, so obviously we had uh, two ways of thinking about this. We could try to find genes that were absolutely essential for growth. And then the idea is that if you knock out that gene, then you would prevent growth. Or we could try to find genes that were limiting growth. And then the strategy, therapeutic strategy, would be to turn those genes on to further limit growth. We were only fortunate in our initial screens in finding the latter type of genes. Genes like the interferon receptor and the IL-10 receptor antagonist that were basically, when we knocked them out, we actually saw increased growth of chlamydia. So we can now say these genes are involved in restricting growth of chlamydia, because if you knock them out, you get more growth. And so the idea is now if we turn them on, we should be able to further restrict growth. So it's a different type of therapy. Usually what you're trying to do is inhibit a target. This time we'd be trying to stimulate a target. And so that's uh, essentially what we came up with in this first round. But in the longer term, obviously, now we would like to move to much more complex systems. And the system that's most exciting to my mind, which uh, the first author on the paper, Amy Jung, has now uh, actually piloted, and it looks like it's working okay, is the idea of uh, infecting our embryonic stem cells with libraries of guide RNAs so that you then make essentially potential mutant library within your stem cells, growing them out and then figuring out which ones are able to take on chlamydia, which ones are not able to take on chlamydia. So then you can find instead of now trying to choose winners and losers, what you're doing is an unbiased screen to find new genes that might affect chlamydia growth. So that's where the real excitement comes from this technology. Technology just shows basically that you can do it but the paper that we published shows that you can do it. But the technology is much broader in its uh, implications. I'd love to apply this also to the antibiotic resistance that, that chlamydia is developing. So is it the extracellular form, the intracellular form? How do antibiotics actually act on chlamydia? To, and so how is it mutating to become resistant? And are these guide genes that you're talking about, will they potentially open it up to and current antibiotics becoming useful, or is it just using the body's defenses? The extracellular form of chlamydia is called an elementary body, and an elementary body has essentially condensed DNA, it's a round particle, and it's surrounded by a cell wall. 
So that particular version of chlamydia is not growing. And so because it's not growing and because antibiotics only really work on growing bacteria, then it's not susceptible to antibiotics. So this makes therapy really complicated because the antibiotic has to not only be able to attack bacterial cells, but it has to get in to host cell and not attack host cell. You're actually asking. So it has to break into the host cell. Yes. And from there, you need the body cells to be able to start their defense or to have an antibiotic that would get into the cells themselves to act on the growing chlamydia. That's right. And, there's, and of all the major antibiotics in our society, there is a relatively modest number, maybe 30% or so, that are actually able to get inside cells. So that really restricts the choices for treatment of chlamydia infections. And because it restricts the choices and there are so many infections, then obviously you have a very powerful force for development of resistance in chlamydia. Going back to like alternative approaches and specifically drawing from your paper, I mean, I'm sure you've thought this through and I know you're really excited and focused on this using the CRISPR with the guide library to target, knock out a bunch of things on an unbiased way. But the two genes you isolated seem, are the, is, am I correct that they're in this like inflammatory pathway and linked to inflammation? Yes, they both have some uh, inflammation involvement, yes. If you could mobilize the inflammatory signaling in someone with chlamydia, is that an alternate route of treatment? Let's say antibiotics where there is minimal resistance, but also promoting inflammation, or is that not really practical clinically because of the you know, byproducts of promoting systemic inflammation? No, in fact, inflammation is the problem with chlamydia infection. So chlamydia mm. causes uh, particularly a syndrome called pelvic inflammatory disease in women. And it's, uh, I think, the major cause of sterility in women. It's also often called the silent uh, killer. It's not a killer, but it's a silent organism where it basically subverts, uh, it causes this persistent inflammatory response that eventually gets into the reproductive organs of uh, women especially and can cause this pelvic inflammatory disease, which is uh, persistent pain over years and eventually sterility. So it, that's the bad thing. You can't just go for inflammation by itself because inflammation has what we like to call a yin and a yang. It has the good bit, get rid right. of the bad stuff, but it has the bad bit, which is the cause inflammatory processes. And so what you want to do is to get the good bit without the bad bit. Right. So you want to be able to get the limiting aspect of the inflammatory disease, but not the damaging factors there as well. Yes. So how far along? You've got a paper in the works for uh, the guide RNA and experiments underway. Uh, you mentioned that they seem successful so far. How far along are you? We've gotten the works, but it takes a while, especially in the very competitive world of stem cells. What we're hoping is that other people will follow on because the methods are uh, fairly straightforward and they don't have to be just applied to stem cell-derived macrophages. It could be any functional cell that you can make out of a, a stem cell that can be used for the screening process. What we're still working out is how to deconvolute the libraries. So you have to put a selective pressure on that, which in our case would be an infectious organism. It's uh, easy when you're killing cells to pick the cells that were, have not survived or the guide RNAs that have not survived at the other end. It's not so easy when you don't have a good selection. So if we're just, for example, looking at the ability of chlamydia to infect a cell, 
so chlamydia binding to cells, we would have to do some sort of fax sorting or whatever. So these are the types of things that we're trying to sort out right now is what's the best way to do the screening when you don't have a strong negative selection. In other words, everybody who's not useful dies and the rest of them survive. So how about um, other diseases? I mean, you're focused on antibiotics resistance at large. Is there the idea of making other cell types within the body that are vulnerable to bacterial infection to, you know, translate or apply your technology to that model? We're just going hunting for money to look at filial cells. So there are really nice uh, models now to turn uh, iPS cells into uh, lung type tissue, almost the organoid type tissue. And so that would be a really nice area to go in because, uh, again, you have no way of uh, test looking for the genetics of infection at the level of the lung. But the lung infections are a huge cause of uh, issues worldwide. In fact, they're the major killer of all microbial type deaths. We've also been interested recently in uh, sepsis where we identified a series of genes that seem to serve as a signature for the development of sepsis and organ failure while the patient is still in the emergency ward. And so we want to find out more about those and whether they would perhaps offer potential targets in the context of sepsis. So we are in the process of knocking those genes out in uh, iPS cells and then trying to ask the question, what do they do? And are they appropriate targets in the context of sepsis? And sepsis is a huge one because it's uh, 8% of all deaths on the planet every year. It's a bacterial-caused hyperinflammatory disease. Sepsis is such a huge issue, especially infirmaries and in medical wards around the world. The bacterial infection that actually sometimes comes from the medical treatment itself as a result. The chlamydia-related genes seems to be an interleukin, which is related to inflammatory response. Do you think these interleukins will be broadly represented across the lung, the epithelial tissue, the sepsis infections? Inflammation, like you said, there's the yin and the yang. Is it a doorway for the bacteria to gain access? The idea is that uh, we did find a couple of targets, prospective targets, but I don't think these are the perfect targets for chlamydia. And until we really go through a proper screening process, I won't feel confident that we found a really excellent target. These particular targets are heavily involved in inflammatory responses. They're involved in the signaling process for inflammation. Traditionally, those sorts of targets like TNF receptor and interferons have a lot of pathology involved with them because they have these good bits and these bad bits, if you like. So what we'd like to do is find a pathway inhibitor, something involved in the signaling process that signals the ability of the media to assist in cells. All right, so that's what you're working on, how they persist in the cells. Got it. I find this so fascinating. The idea that we can use the cell's own, the body's own defenses and figure out a way to get around the antibiotic resistance issue. As a microbiologist, how concerned, I mean, people are talking about the issue with antibiotic resistance and overprescribing. And is this something that we really need to be concerned about and we really need to be finding new answers? new directions to be able to solve the problems of these infections? I've been involved in the drug development industry for decades now. I've started four companies myself. I think that uh, everybody is aware paradigm for discovering new antibiotics is really broken. The old idea was to find some new source of diversity or some new target and then 
just like uh, find a new chemical for that particular target or within that particular source of diversity and then hammer away at it and uh, introduce it into the clinic and come up with a new drug. So this really hasn't worked for the last uh, 35 years or so. It seems unlikely, even with increased efforts right now, we're going to see a real game-changing antibiotic. So I'm a huge proponent of the idea we have to figure out how to do things a little bit differently. So we have to think of new strategies, new ways of getting at the same problem. I like to call those alternatives or maybe adjuvants or adjuncts to antibiotics. The idea that we can do something to tip the balance towards a successful therapy. This is critical in human disease. It's also really massively important in animal disease where we're using a lot of antibiotics rather futilely. I like this idea of post-directed therapies. I like immune modulation. I like microbiota type, uh, probiotic type approaches. So I like this idea of thinking about the problem differently and coming up with new solutions based on new thinking. Well, one solution may lie in the IPS model that you've developed, and hopefully we can apply this across a broad spectrum of diseases and see how that shakes out. We're looking forward to the work coming out of your lab, doctor. Yeah, thanks very much for talking to me. Yeah, this is fascinating work. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right, Kiki, that was Bob Hancock talking about the scourge of the planet chlamydia. Yikes! I'm glad I never got that thing. But if I had, I could have counted on Hancock to save me, that's for sure. <laughs> He's doing some amazing work. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he could, maybe he couldn't, but he's certainly working on how to figure it out. And like he was saying, it's good to get multiple pathways to get around the problem of antibiotic resistance. We need, lots, we need to look at lots of different ways to solve the problem. And so I'm glad he's working on it. He's a, he's a good one. But you know what? It is time for us to close the show with our rant. This is our chance to complain about something that bothers us. And, you know, it might bother you too. I don't know, but maybe it does. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I'm going to talk about personal holidays. And I want to be clear. Okay, I want to be clear. I'm all for it. Take a personal holiday. I got to be honest. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because it's my anniversary. And I killed it, by the way. I came up real strong. Good gift. Called at 4 a.m. in the morning. Even though my wife was next to me, I left a message on the phone telling her I loved her. Because I do, for Aww. goodness sake. But that was... I know. I I'm good. That. I know. What I'm a very lucky good. lady. She's very, very lucky. But this is beside the point, okay? The personal holiday there, that was my anniversary. And that's fine. But I don't I don't claim it. I don't talk to people. I was, hey, listen, man, I you know I gotta do this thing because I have a personal holiday and this is what it is. I, I'm okay with taking the day. My rant is about hearing about it. I don't want to hear about people's personal holiday, about your kid's birthday. Are you coming to work? If you're not coming to work, take it's called a personal day, which means you take the day and it's personal. You don't tell me. Do not share your personal holiday with me. Yeah. So professionally, if someone comes in and like tells you why they're taking their personal day, you know, they're inappropriate. just there. It's inappropriate because that's like personal life stuff. Unless you're maybe best friends and you're talking about it outside of the work context. But if it's no best bring, friends, <laughs> it's bringing it into the workplace. That is kind of interesting. It's like you come in and you go, it's my anniversary. So I'm taking a personal day. And are you saying that so that 
people go, oh, it's your anniversary. And it starts oh, a conversation. Yeah. What are you doing? Did you do something, are you doing something special? Yes. It's like people trying to get you to celebrate with them. When exactly. you could, do you care? Do you want I to care? I don't care. Even <laughs> if I, you know, you nailed it. That's it. Because it's the, it's like you're looking for, it's one of two things. You're it's either, either looking like, for sympathy hey, or excitement, yes. right? Yeah, exactly. Like it's justified. Look, I'm not coming to work today, but, but you know, it's my kid's birthday. So it's justified. I'm taking a holiday, but it shouldn't be because it's that. Or it's like, hey, let's talk about my kid's birthday. Neither of those options is okay with me. I'm done with this rant and I'm done with personal days. <laughs> yeah, I was just writing an email the other day and I, I edited it as I was going because I was responding to someone and I was, in my response, I started explaining myself and then I stopped and I went, no, that's my personal thought. That's my personal life. All I need to do is make a statement about what I want or what ask a question about what my question is. I don't need yes. to wrap it up in all this story and other stuff that the person at the other end of this email could care less. It's, it's not the just same annoying. Thing. It shows weakness. Weakness. Just, tell, just say what you're going to do. Do it. Just be direct. That's right. All right, everybody. That was, I thought that was a good rant. We could do another great better. rant. Yeah, we both feel, I, feel I think good. we both I do. Yeah. Good. I got you. You were into, you were, you don't like it either. <laughs> no. I love it. It's all about, let's be direct. Just do what well, you're going to you do. Like it, I know it's real then. If you don't like that, I know it's real because you're very nice. <laughs> all right, everyone. Please be sure to send us your rant ideas. What do you want us to rant about? Did you like what we rant? Do you feel the same way about people being direct or sharing their personal lives with you? Let us know on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 96 of the Stem Cell Podcast. I hope everyone tunes in for our next episode. Maybe we're going to get another personal story from Dalen's past. I never had chlamydia, by the way. <laughs> I really didn't. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.